Hey everyone, another episode of iFreaks Show. Uh, today on our panel we have uh, Su Jing. Hello everyone. Uh, myself, Alex Bush, and uh, we have a guest, uh, Mohammed Azam. Azam? Sorry. Yeah, Azam. Hello. Hey, Azam. How's, yeah, how's it gone? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, so, Azam, we have you today to talk about a very interesting topic that iOS is not, it's not getting covered in iOS community much. I don't think many people practice it and even fewer people talk about it. Although in other communities such as Ruby and Ruby on Rails, that's uh, almost as, a, as given as TDD. And the topic is BDD, Behavior Driven Development. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine. And it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. So, Azam, let's get started with maybe a quick intro about yourself, sort of how you got into it, and then we'll, we'll dive into what, what BDD is. Sure. Uh, so, my name is Mohamed Azam, as we already uh, established that. And I am uh, currently working, I, I have been doing iOS development since 2010. I've worked with many large Fortune 500 companies. And uh, right now, at this moment, I'm teaching full stack development, web development for a company called Digital Crafts, where I, uh, it's a boot camp. So it's a 16 week, week boot camp. And due to the situation right now, we are teaching it remotely, but it is a on site uh, face to face physical boot camp and uh, which teaches web development. Right. So how'd you, how'd you gotten into iOS development? So it, in 2010, one of my colleagues, he was very much into Apple stuff, and he was always buying the new iPhone, the new iPads, and he introduced me to iOS uh, development by saying that, hey, you can uh, create apps and you can actually make money. And when I heard that, then I'm like, okay, I need to make money. So I started I'm just on the fly. In less than 30 seconds, I bought the Mac, and I wrote my first app, which was a game, ABC Pop for Kids. And uh, maybe in a couple of months, in three, four months, it made like $1,200. So it paid for the laptop or the MacBook Pro. And after that, I was kind of hooked. It's just something very uh, intimate about uh, writing apps for your phone, which you are using it throughout the day. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's how I got hooked too, because you, the code you write, you can immediately, pretty much immediately run and touch actually literally okay so on to the topic of bdd though so let's first start with definitions what mm -hmm. what bdd is so bdd which stands for behavior driven development is 
quite similar to test-driven development, but it is looking at the problem from outside-in approach. So TDD, which stands for test-driven development, if you're writing tests first, which is great, you usually start at the core of the application, like at the database layer, and then you move out to the business logic layer, then maybe you move out to the controllers layer, and then to the UI layer, and then you move out or you span out from the core inside out. But the concept of BDD is that you're writing only the tests that are important for the actual business. Because I all strongly believe that when you are programming, programming, learning programming is, I don't think it's that hard. I mean, I teach programming, been teaching it for four years, and learning the programming itself is not a big deal. But I think what's the most important thing for us to learn as the programmers, as developers, is the actual business behind programming, meaning business behind the companies. How does that even work? And we mostly don't have any idea. We know how to populate a list view and a grid view and all those things. But when you submit a requisition or when you file for your insurance claim, if you're working in a hospital, what goes behind the scene to determine the final cost of the procedure? We don't know, right? So I think BDD is all about that. Uh, so when you're creating your app or writing your code with BDD, you're always communicating with the business people because they're the only ones that have the intimate knowledge of the product, the application that you're building. So we go into many different things like what exactly and how you can get started with BDD, but the best way to get started is to write descriptive names for your test. So instead of calling your test like something got added, you should provide a context to it. Like, so your name of the class can be really long, like a story. When the person goes on to the login page and register with, so when the person goes on to the login page, and then we can add some functions, very descriptive, and tries to log in, then using credential, the user will be able to log in, something like that, but very descriptive. Right. Yeah. I um, So I haven't worked with a BDD style of development on iOS, mm-hmm. but I have done a, a little bit of it when I was doing Ruby on Rails. And um, my sort of impression of how BDD works, it's um, kind of like what you said, TDD in a sense of you write it first, like in TDD you write tests first and then the implementation code. With BDD, you got to write your Mm, how do they call them? This specifications. Script? Specifications. Specifications, yes. Right. And, and to me, they're akin to scripts, quote-unquote, and scripts. When I say scripts, I don't mean the coding script, but uh, a play script for acting. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, yeah, like as an example of what you were saying, when such and such happens as a user or whatever, as an admin or whatever other actor when this and this has happened, so clicked or acted on, then I should be able to see blah or blah, blah should happen. Something like that, right? Yes, yes. And and the beauty of this is that when you're writing these specifications, uh, which we call executable specifications, you're not writing in some Swift language or Objective-C or some Java. You're writing in plain English language, which is called Gherkin language or Jerkin language. 
And the beauty of this language is also that it is understood by developers as well as business people who are absolutely not technical. So they can look at the specification and they can say that, okay, hold on, this specification doesn't really look right because we're missing some parts. And business people, people can also execute the specification and get the result if they change some parameters and if the specification is failing, then maybe we left out some narrow or edge cases. So all of those things combine together to, to form kind of like the BDD flow for our applications. Yeah, and it just kind of reiterate again the, for, for our listeners who never uh, heard of BDD and never seen those, it's actually literally plain English text just structured in this certain, uh, what did you call it, Gherkin format? Gherkin, Gherkin language, yes. Yeah, where, I mean, to simplify, it's complex, more complex than that, but to simplify, it's um, um, it's kind of like a regex parsing type of thing that happens behind yes. the scenes, right? Yes. Where the, the analyze, can, can, you, um, can you give us more details on those sort of parts that get... Parts. Yeah, parsed so, out of it, that each document with an example so, of maybe that, that one you were talking about. Yeah, so Gherkin language, which is just plain English uh, language, it consists of many different sections. Uh, the feature section where you will simply talk about the feature of the app. That's not something that will be executed. The scenario, what is scenario that you're trying to solve in that feature. So that's also not going to get executed. And then there are parts called when, then, and. So when, W-H-E-N, like just like the English word. And that is kind of like setting up the context of that particular story that you're working on or the task that you're working on. When the user clicks a button, then the other part is then, T-H-E-N, then something should happen. User is authenticated. And there is also A-N-D, and. If you want to use, you can use that, but it's at least usually you will have when and then, and that's it. So what's, what's and used for usually? And is used for like, if you want to carry on with multiple things. So when the user gets, when the user clicks on a button, then the user gets authenticated and I should see a message on the screen. So if you want to join different, basically the flow, into multiple items, then you can use when, then, and. Is that for um, sort of a side effect and other side effects besides the immediate re result? Is that the idea? I think the idea behind and is just like if you want to continue with checking something else. So if they're, yeah, as you said, like side effects of something that you want to check. If the user is authenticated, and you want to see something on the screen, like a message or something. So I'm actually quite new to BDD. And maybe I heard of the word like a couple of times before, but, uh, but so I just like took, I'm just taking a look at the cucumberish link that you uh, posted. And I'm just like confused and dazzled because I see this, I just see this plain language, plain text of instructions and and the app is running in the simulator, so I I I I'm I have quite no idea how it's working, how it's translating, and how it's uh, running the simulator and performing tests. Could you like, could you explain a little bit more how it's translated, how it's yeah. uh, executing my Swift code, Swift app? 
So for every of, of these BDD frameworks, well, not every, I guess, but this is more of a executable specification. So you're writing your specification in your plain English, which is your uh, feature file. So it actually ends with the word feature. And usually all of those feature files are put inside a feature folder or something. And what's going on is that when you're starting the app, you do have to set up Cucumberish to tell where the files will be. And once it knows all the files, what it's doing is that we are writing, I don't know if they show that in the video, but they are writing part of that actual BDD test, like when, then, and, in the, as a name of the function. So they're providing that in the closure and using the regex match, as Alex was saying, matching regex, they are trying to execute those things. Uh, so you can even have one particular feature file with five or 10 different features, and it will copy or it will match when, then, when, then, and, when, then, and, and all that stuff. And that's at least from behind the scene, that's what's going on. So if you have feature files, you have to have a corresponding Swift code to execute those feature files. Have you ever felt like JavaScript is just everywhere? Well, we have. We actually had a conversation on JavaScript Jabber about what you can build with JavaScript. We've also talked about what JavaScript is and how we're inspired by the language. If you're interested in JavaScript or are doing web development, then you definitely need to check out JavaScript Jabber. You can find it at javascriptjabber.com. How does that execution happen? And what code do you need to have? So in the setup file that you have over there in uh, Cucumbrish, you have to, I don't remember the exact setting up part of it, but uh, there is some setup required. First of all, you have to install obviously Cucumber framework, which is in the pod file, uh, if you're installing it using uh, CocoaPods. And then you will have to create your feature file, which will be extension.feature. After that, you have to create all of those given when and then, which are the name of the functions, which takes in a large string, and that string has to match exactly like the actual given when then that you put in the feature file. That is how it will actually match. And somewhere along the way, I think somewhere in the testing file, or you have to like create another cucumber init, init file or a setup file, that is where it will hook up everything. So the setting apart is kind of a little bit pain, but once you set up, once you set up and it's working, then it becomes more seamless. So it's one-time setup. When you want to launch it, or sort of execute it and run mm -hmm. it, are you creating a, a unit test target or UI test target? How does it technically happen? And do you have to set it up yourself or the frameworks doing it for you? You, you just have to run the test itself. So it is a testing target. So when you run the test, uh, since we have already set up the Cucumberish setup uh, at the start, it automatically picks up those feature files and it just uh, starts running those, just like a test. So if it fails, it, you can actually look at it in the test navigator and it will also tell you that, well, these tests actually failed. So I remember from the time when I was doing it with uh, Ruby on Rails, um, mm -hmm. there was, a, so for example, uh, from that um, Cucumberish, uh, read me for Cucumberish repo, right? They have this 
quick GIF example of, well, what Sujin was saying, uh, some scenario for a yeah. feature running and then it's executed and running on the right-hand side in a simulator. Yeah. So for example, they have scenario says add an activity and that's the name of the scenario. And then mm -hmm. given it is home screen and all data cleared, then I tap on the add activity button and I write blah, 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 when blah, 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 and so on. So like, mm -hmm. as far as I recall, it's been a while since mm -hmm. I've done that uh, BDD uh, with Cucumber. Um, this whole line, the first line, Okay. of the scenario given it is home screen i believe there is somewhere you need to give it a like a helper function to actually tell you if you are in that home screen because otherwise the framework itself as it parses it it does not understand what the hell this is, right? Yes, yes. So all of these lines that you'd see, like add, add an activity given it is a home screen. So all of this given it is a home screen, given will be a function which is already predefined in Cucumber, and you are going to pass it is a home screen to it, which is the rest of the text. So it will match mm -hmm. against the first given. And then the second function, which is already defined inside Cucumberish is and, and also then, T-H-E-N. So all of these functions, you have to just fill out the remaining parts. So and will be a function, which is already there, and you will fill out the string, all data cleared. But inside the given, you can actually launch the app, which I think they're doing. They're launching some sort of a UI app, iPhone app, and then they are pushing some buttons and all that stuff. So it looks like they also have the uh, UI testing, UI kit, or not the UI kit, but the UI testing target, so they can access all of those different elements. So, so there is also a domain-specific language, right? Some sort of a DSL, because let's say in the case of when I tap in quotes increment button, mm -hmm. increment, the word increment in quotes and then button five times, that whole five times needs to be parsed, right? Yes. And then the word button probably is recognized as a UI button element, mm -hmm. and then it's searching tree UI tree mm -hmm. of your running app, something like that, right? Yes, yeah, so everything that is inside the code, so if you're saying then I tap the add activity button, then add activity, since it sits inside the code, is actually passed as a regex expression. And inside your actual function for then, you are going to put that regex expression and get the value out. Once you get the value out of five or six or 10 times, whatever you're passing in the executable specification, it will still be string. Then you'll have to convert it to int and do five times or 10 times, whatever you want to do. But I think one of the things that's really cool about BDD is that we have been always looking at tests from a different angle. We, when we write tests or when I used to write tests, we always used to write tests from inside out, meaning I would write the test for the database, I would write the test to the controller, then the UI, then all that, going from inside out. But when you're writing BDD, you're going outside in. So you're going from writing a acceptance test. So this all that you see in your feature file, this is an acceptance test, which hopefully you have consulted a business domain expert to write it for you, or maybe you just sat with them 
and they actually evaluated or or they kind of told you that this is the feature that they want. And then you started from this big test, which is keep on failing most of the time because you don't have a UI, you don't have a controller, you don't have a database, you don't have service, you don't have anything at that point. So this acceptance test that you're writing in BDD in a feature file, this will keep on failing for a very long time because you don't have the underlying stuff to pass it. But it will dictate that what needs to be done and then from there you will move on to other pieces down the road. So moving towards the core from outside in. So as I see uh, it, I, as I see, I think it's a UI test, right? So it's not a unit test, so it's a UI test. And um, so is it up to the developer to mock, uh, like mock uh, server response or anything like that? Um, so these tests, usually when you're writing these tests, uh, these are good, or at least a BDD tests are usually good for acceptance tests, meaning if that is accepted, then it means that the feature is completed. But as you said, that there's no way, no one stopping you from writing the UI test in a very similar way. Uh, you can use Cucumberish or any other framework like BDD framework to do the same exact thing. But I think it's mostly powerful when you're actually writing the outermost test, which is your uh, BDD test. But also it's very, very helpful if you are writing your domain test because domain is the actual part or the brain of the application where all the logic comes into play. Uh, so instead of testing controllers where there is no logic and we keep on mocking out controllers, uh, we should be more focused on the actual domain of the application where all the logic is there, all the rules, the rules engine and everything. So to me, it feels like um, there is one more layer on top of existing Xcode UI test, right? So we still, we still have to, I still have to write like all the XCUI elements, XCUI applications codes to like navigate and press buttons. And, but in, in this cucumber, cucumberish, there's one more layer is called the feature, the, the specifications. So is that, so, to, so I just feel like there's just one more file or one more um, yeah, code that I have to fill in. So, so is it the advantage of writing, like you said, is it's, uh, it's so we can um, share with the business people mm -hmm. and share like share some like mm -hmm. common, uh, common test specifications. Yeah. So yeah, so that's a good question because it looks very much like a UI test when you're writing cucumber test or BDD style test. Uh, so the difference between a UI test as compared to the acceptance test that you see with written using BDD is that the UI test will never really hit the actual web service. If it is supposed to hit a web service, we will simply mock it out because the UI test has to, it has nothing to do with actually hitting a real service or fetching the weather information or fetching a list of customers. So UI test should not hit a real production service. It should always hit some sort of a, fake mocked out service, we should get the data and we should just display it. So that we can test that while well, the UI elements are working correctly. On the other hand, we have these acceptance tests which are written using Cucumberish or any other framework. These are actually hitting the actual production services. 
So all of these tests that you're looking at, I mean, I don't, I know that they're not hitting anything right now, but if you, if you, if we have to write an acceptance test to get the weather information and we are writing an acceptance test, then I would hit an actual web service production and I would get the data. Well, I mean, we can still write Excel UI tests without mocking. We can still hit actual API, right? So what, what you is can. the difference? Yes. No, but you can hit it, but now your UI test has a dependency on the service. When it should not have a dependency on a third-party service because your UI test should be independent. So if I just turn the Wi-Fi off and I run the UI test, it should still pass. But now if we are making a dependency or we are hitting the, the UI test with the UI hit the actual service and we don't have a Wi-Fi, maybe we are in a plane or in a, in a train, then that test is actually going to fail because there is no Wi-Fi and your UI test is dependent on that Wi-Fi. So that's why it's always good to have no dependencies, no outside dependencies for your unit test or your UI test so that they should just work under pretty much all the conditions. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. How are you mitigating the issues? So if for acceptance tests, you, you're hitting production server, mm-hmm. servers, as you said, so it's a fully functioning production environment, you are going to be polluting your actual produ- production database every time you run it. Mm-hmm. How is that resolved? Because to me, it sounds like, well, maybe we should run staging or even mock as Sujin was Yeah, saying. I mean, by production, I mean very close to production, maybe like an exact copy of the production. Because if I am running or accessing maybe uh, some sort of an e-commerce and I'm trying to add a product, I don't want those products to actually exist on my actual store. So it will be very close to production, kind of like a clone of production. I see. Yeah, I, I think there was a term for that. It's not, not like, it's not staging, but it's like a flavor of staging and exactly what you're saying, a clone mm. of production, like a replica, something, something. I, keep, I forget. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like a replica of production. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, makes sense. So in that regard, then, would you say that um, BDD, um, what, what are they called? Features, right? 
I want to call them scenarios with features. Yes, scenarios, executable specifications also. Specifications, yeah. yeah. They're not really meant to be like, unlike UI tests or TDD tests, they're not meant to be launched quickly to make sure that it still works, right? It's more of a, let's test kind of like once almost or twice mm -hmm. maybe that we actually built the right thing. But it's not meant to be run in product, uh, in, uh, sorry, in a continuous integration environment, for example. It can, definitely. I think it will be useful also because just for the specification and uh, ability to write the specification in pure English, I think the real benefit also, apart from the acceptance test, can also be writing domain-specific tests because domain is the one that is really challenging and we developers, we don't really mostly understand what is going on behind the scene. So if we are sitting with a domain expert, then we can write these better specifications using uh, BDD and using these executable specifications, keeping in mind that whenever we are testing domain, those are unit tests and they should not be hitting the database. They should not be communicating the, the web service. If they are, they should be mocked and they should be super fast. Uh, unit tests should be executed in less than a second or so. So making sure that they are fast and making sure that they are independent. So definitely it can be used in those scenarios also. Yeah. What's the rule of thumb there? Do you, like, t t t uh, unit tests are launched like million times a day on your local machine and then many times as in your continuous integration pipeline as you build things and keep rerunning them and so on, then even integration tests, sort of similar. Maybe you don't run them locally as much, but right up before you would commit your new code on your local machine, let's say, and then maybe once or twice in your continuous integration pipeline to make sure everything works. Is that, the, for acceptance tests, do we just run them that last moment right before making a release build for App Store or more often than before that? I think if we have already set up as some sort of a clone server, then acceptance test per feature should run uh, when we are done with the feature itself. So, so that we know that they are, instead of waiting like two weeks sprint and waiting at the last day on a Friday or Thursday, that, hey, we, we need to run these acceptance tests. I think whenever we are done with the story, we should run all the acceptance tests related to that story. Unit tests, on the other hand, as you already said, it's going to be running like a lot because we it's just in the memory and they will allow us to quickly iterate through our architecture of whatever we are doing or whatever we are coding. Uh, the longer the test takes, usually UI tests, acceptance tests, the more we'll have to wait to run those things. Uh, like for UI testing or integration testing, usually this can be like nightly basis. You will run like two times a night or, or whenever the someone checks in a code in a particular branch, then you run unit tests as well as integration tests to see if everything is working. Uh, but for acceptance tests, I think we can just run this. And when I was doing this, I would just run it as soon as a feature was done so that we know that that feature is completed. See, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know, yeah, it's, do you have any, I'm just thinking of, uh, I heard the stories and I know some people done it and it's doable um, to 
sit down with your client, or let's say your consultant, right? And sit down with your client and as you were saying before, your product st stakeholder and kind of walk, either have them write those or you walk them through, or as they explain you what features they want to build, you immediately with them write that document effectively with those mm -hmm. features and scenarios and specs. Uh, how, I guess I'm trying, I'm thinking how to phrase that question. How, I guess what I'm thinking of asking is how realistic this is, because that sounds like a lot of, uh, it's difficult to get the buy-in from the stakeholder because now yeah. they have to think, right? And it's this logical structure. They're not mm -hmm. used to that. There's just this business, some guy, right? Who's, who just came up with this new cool idea of a new whatever app, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. This is going to be hard. It's not going to be as easy as it uh, as it kind of sounds because sometimes you know we we will just have to come up with our own features. But I think when BDD really shines is when everyone, one uh, developer, tester, manager, or domain expert or business people, they're all working together on the same product, and that's the only time it will shine because business people have different expertise than us developers. Um, so if developers have, have a hard time communicating with the business people, then maybe your next step would be to communicate with your direct manager. Maybe they know about that feature. If they don't know about that feature, then obviously it needs to be something that is discussed using their scrum meeting or planning meeting that what are all of those, or post planning meeting, I guess, that what are all those steps? Because somebody has to tell us what those business thing means what is the criteria of passing the feature and failing the feature? Uh, maybe you come up with the steps and then you can just go with the business person or the domain expert just to clarify some steps or just to validate it that am I missing something or is that and sound good like everything, all the steps or am I missing something? But yeah, this is more of a communication problem that you will see, collaboration problem. And I think different companies will take different steps to resolve those issues. So if only like the uh, BDD is done within development team, so is it, so is it not not that valuable? I think it will definitely definitely it will be hard because the main point of BDD is to specify all the different things that needs to happen. Basically, it's all about the business. It's all about what we want to do in the business, what problem that we're trying to solve. It is very rare to have a developer who is great, I mean, intermediate or senior level, but also have great information in terms of how the things work. And if you are one of those, well, you're only few, like there are not many people in the world who are like that. Uh, I mean, I can create an iOS app, but I have no idea how the insurance system work or how the oil and gas system works and how Amazon system work and how do they order how do they process the order? Those are all the domains that I don't know. But there are people in Amazon, in hospitals, businesses, oil and gas that understand the domain. And I think we have to use their, uh, basically their knowledge to make a better product. Yeah, I think exactly you nailed it. Um, what you're talking about is domain expertise versus technical expertise. 
Um, most of the time, as developers, we have tech, tech expertise because that's what we specialize in, but we do not understand. You're building your e-commerce app, right? Your Amazon. Well, you're likely, as a developer, not an expert in e-commerce and what drives people's purchasing behavior and adding to cart and checking out and getting back to abandoned cart and what mm. what discounts at what periods of time with for what cyber mondays whatever trigger that and drive more sales we have no idea i mean i ideally we should and or rather if we are that would benefit everyone mm. but likely you need a dedicated specialist for that a product owner product manager what however that person's called and mm. that would be the domain expert explaining you that this checkout button needs to be blue <laughs> or yeah. something. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can code it. And that, that document would be a medium between you and uh, the product owner to communicate and be on the same page, ideally. Yes. I think, I think what I've seen in my experience is mostly ends up being inter internal documentation describing product features sort of more free form well literally free form and just english right but yeah. it's never that structured although i wish it was because then it's well we can now take it and run it right and execute it and have code executed yes i think i kind of compare this with uh, doing agile development i mean agile development has all these principles that you need to do scrum and uh, uh, you know, uh, automated builds and unit testing, pair programming, code reviews. But even if we as developers really love agile development, we cannot do it without other developers kind of like opting in into it. So it has to be kind of like all or nothing kind of a situation. And I, I have been in those situations where we were like in our team, developers, four or five developers, we were all in for agile methodology, the agile principles but our client was like, no, I don't understand what this is. So we had to revert back to whatever their methodologies and principle was because it's kind of like, it's, it's, uh, it has to be, you know, one decision, not two separate decisions. So to get started with this, what, what one should do? I mean, we, we, we mentioned, um, Cucumber-ish, right? That's the, mm -hmm. wait, what was the Cucumber-ish? Oh, yeah. Cucumber-ish cucumber right. is one framework. Uh, it's, it's a little bit old, but it will at least give you an idea of uh, writing executable specification. There is another framework, which I haven't used, which is called Cucumber Swift. It's a little bit more modern framework. Uh, it also allows you to write executable specification, meaning just plain English and you can execute the specification and it will tell you if it's passed or not. But I think even before going to these frameworks, Cucumberish or Cucumber Swift or any other framework, you should learn the essence of behavior-driven development, all the different things that happen in behavior-driven development, meaning uh, how do you communicate with the client, meaning how do you come up with specification and what specification do actually look like, what things that you should be interested in testing, naming your function, naming your uh, classes in a very different way, at least testing classes. 
And for those, we have like different books like BDD Action, BDD in Action and Behavior Driven Development and uh, other articles. Uh, the good thing I think about BDD is that it doesn't really matter if you're using Swift or Java or .NET. It's just the concepts that are important. So you can go and pick up a book on Ruby on Rails and Cucumber in Ruby on Rails or in .NET, which is a spec flow in .NET and read those books and you will know about BDD because Cucumberish and Cucumber Swift or any other frameworks are just tools. The actual important thing is the mindset and uh, clarification of the concepts. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's actually a great point that it's a, a concept and it's cross-platform language agnostic. It's more, way more higher higher level than any particular implementation or programming language. Um, great. Uh, Sujin, do, do you have any other questions? No. Cool. Well, I think we should uh, wrap it up. Um, I think also, before we do though, I believe, uh, Azam, you're... Um, you had a video. You have a video course about it, right? About BDD. Yes, I have a brand new course. It is called Testing iOS Apps: Behavior-Driven Development Using Swift. So it starts with understanding TDD and all the flow of red-green refactor, and then later on we jumped into BDD and we create a very practical kind of like a credit card APR finder application which will have a lot of logic going on depending on your credit score. It will tell you your uh, credit card APR rate. Nice. So that would be a great course, I'm assuming, to, kind of, to get you started with BDD on iOS. Yes, it will, it will be a good course to even start with even TDD or unit testing and understand why do you even unit test? What, what advantages does TDD and unit testing have in general? And then, yes, it moves into more of a BDD-style testing. Makes sense. Uh, all right. So where our listeners can reach you on the internet? So I'm or on Twitter, and uh, I'm at Azam Sharp, A-Z-A-M-S-H-A-R-P. That's the quickest way to reach me. Uh, great. And uh, we, you, uh, our listeners can find our show at uh, iFreaks on Twitter as well. And uh, let's move on to, <laughs> I guess I was slightly early. Let's move on to picks. We, we usually do at the end of the show. Uh, picks, uh, as, as you know, you, you've been a guest already a few times. Okay. Uh, I'll put you on the spot and ask if you have any tips. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I have a pick. It's the WWDC Mac application that they just announced, I think, yesterday maybe or day before yesterday. And I'm looking forward for next week when WWDC is uh, basically hosted so we can learn more about the new features coming up in iOS. Awesome. Sujin, any picks for you? Uh, actually, this week I don't have a pick. Yeah, just preparing for next week's WWDC. Right. I had a pick and I forgot. It was a book by uh, one of the books by Robert Heinling. Uh, no, I remember now. It's called The Mark of the Beast. Fantastic fiction. And I think I already made a bunch of pics of his books on previous shows. 
uh, highly recommend. Uh, time travel, universe travel, spaceships, aliens, awesome. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks, uh, Azam, for coming in. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.